AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. So, John, a couple of news stories this week about a new IoT botnet. Do you have any info on that? I do. So we've seen lots of different IoT botnets over the years. And this is actually about a year since the large Mirai botnet composed of a lot of IoT-based devices. But what some people are starting to report is there's another new variant of malware infecting IoT devices. One person's calling it IoT Reaper. And there's another uh, group calling it IO Troop, uh, but they're basically the same thing. The interesting thing about this one is instead of trying to brute force password guess, a lot of the common default passwords that these devices have, it's using a different tactic. It's got a list of about nine different vulnerabilities for these various types of devices, and it tries to exploit them that way. So it's got a various suite of these different vulnerabilities, and it's scanning for devices that fit those categories or are vulnerable to those, and then it's compromising them and infecting them. So it's kind of a different approach. Instead Do we of the... know how it's scanning? Is it 423 is? Actually, most of them are web-based vulnerabilities. Okay. Actually, I think almost all of them, although I didn't look at every single one, but um, if everybody hangs in for the internet weather, I'll I actually have some, I have some charts kind of showing how this actually uh, looks. Uh, related to some of this activity in the internet weather okay, segment cool. once we get to it. Most of it is web-based traffic on various ports like 80, 81, 88, uh, 8080, 8888, various things like that. As we're seeing the scanning on uh, attempting to target these various vulnerabilities. Uh, another interesting thing that we've seen, not exclusively of this botnet, but it's got uh, the Lua, which is a scripting language, built into it as part of its execution environment, which allows it to, when it wants to issue commands to the bots, it can do it in kind of a universal scripting language that they'll all be able to execute. And we've actually seen that with another family of malware called LuaBot that also infects IoT devices. I don't think it's the same actor as LuaBot, but it's interesting that there's some kind of borrowing of techniques here. Yeah, it looks like there's some borrowing from Mirai as well. That right. part of the base is from Mirai, but also, what I was reading is that it, it appears that the Mirai and Reaper can sort of coexist. Whereas we've seen where other bots, it's one or the other. It looks like a device could have both of these, which is potentially frightening. Well, that is true. And that's not actually unusual. Right. There's a lot of these IoT families of malware that will coexist on a single device together. But then there are some that will intentionally look for other popular variants of malware and try to kill it if it's on it. So right. it's the only you know, one on that device. If they think that there's another family that's gonna use up too much of the resources, because these are small devices, then they'll try to kill it so they have exclusive use. But if they're gonna be kind of just working in the background and not, for example, launching huge denial of service attacks or anything, then they pretty much don't care if something else is also running on there at the same time. The other interesting things about this malware is that they have built into it about 100 uh, open DNS resolvers that are out there. What the purpose of that is, is hard to say if it's for, you know, reflective denial of service attacks or if it's just for resiliency so right. it can get DNS resolution no matter where it is. Hard to say, but they haven't observed any DDoS attacks issued from this 
as of yet. It's definitely one that we should probably keep an eye out for. It's interesting in the way that it's recruiting new devices in and that it's got less suite of vulnerabilities that it's targeting. Right, it's not doing password and brute force password guessing. As far right? as I've read, it hasn't. I haven't right. pulled the sample apart, but um, it's definitely scanning for specific vulnerabilities. A, a couple of friends of mine have samples of this malware that they're starting to to look at, and I'm hoping to have time towards the end of the week to reverse it myself. But keep your eyes open, because we should have more details on what it is that this is actually capable of doing here over the next week or so. And Krebs' story links directly to each vendor's response with patches. So this is one of those that at least since they've identified the main vendors that are being targeted that there are some fixes out so all right great fear the reaper right <laughs> right fear the reaper until next week <laughs> i don't see it right yet as being super large uh compared to some of these other botnets we've we've watched but it's still early so um you know i guess we'll see how it forms uh, literally we only kind of learned about it within the past 24 hours or so so feels a little bit like you know the calm before the storm that you know, this could be something that really puts us to the test in the next you know weeks and months ahead. So we got Jim Clausing online with us this week, and uh, Jim, you're looking at uh, a story about a novel way that some attackers are using to steal people's private SSH keys. It sounds like we see every week that you know SSH is in you know top two or three or four of uh, the scanning on the internet weather. And most of the time, what they're trying to do is brute force, you know, password guess to get in through SSH. But one of the ways that we normally try to avoid that is we tell people use public-private keys. You know, they can guess passwords all they want. They'll never get in if you only allow public-private key authentication. Unfortunately, some people don't really secure their private keys as well as they should. So this story showed up a couple days ago on the uh, securityaffairs.co uh, blog, a report out of a company WordFence. They specialize in trying to secure WordPress websites. And what, what they were seeing was a lot of scans in their logs, folks looking for, as you said, the private SSH keys. They were especially private SSH keys owned by root. You know, if you make a mistake in the way you uh, configure your website so that folks' home directories are browsable, you know, you can find these. And unfortunately, people have been finding them. You know, over the years, I've occasionally seen scans for, for SSH keys, but this seems to be a concerted effort. Do we think there's a new vulnerability associated with this, or is there any particular reason that this harvesting would start? Any uh, any ideas? No, it doesn't look like there's any vulnerability involved here. Uh, this just appears to be folks who notice that some people uh, mistakenly don't protect their private keys as well as they should. I mean, we've seen in the past where you know various keys get accidentally uploaded into GitHub and things like that. And I, I think this was just some guys decided to take a little closer look. They must have found some, otherwise it wouldn't have been worth their while to 
to go about scanning other websites looking for the same kind of thing. Right. It's like we did a story uh, a couple months ago about scans for incomplete WordPress installations, you know, where someone was finding that if you start your WordPress install and leave it, that they can go finish it for you right. and configure it with backdoors and vulnerabilities, same kind of thing. If somebody finds that you've misinstalled your WordPress site with the SSH keys exposed, now, you know, that's something to look for. If somebody is using SSH uh, to push their content out to their website, then they may have their SSH keys, and if they accidentally copy over both their public and their private, you know, then that might be out on the web server. Not sure why you, else you would have your private key out on the web server. You'd want that on the system you're logging into it from. but I think the vulnerability here is stupidity. <laughs> yeah. I n actually never thought even to like look for this. And I, after I read the story, I went to Google and really quickly I was kind of shocked to see how many private SSH keys are just accidentally exposed. The um, analogy I keep thinking of is stealing a car by walking through a parking lot and looking to see if the door's open and the keys are on the seat. <laughs> you know? I guess so. But even better than that, there's directories out there that have already indexed all the cars with their keys inside. Yeah. <laughs> and you just go right to that, you know, red Chevy yeah. and steal it. It's kind of one of those things that you shouldn't be doing. It's basically negligence, you know, leaving your private SSH keys exposed to the Internet. So anybody who's looking for your private keys can just, you know, do a search and grab your keys. I sometimes wonder if people actually really fully understand the significance of the key pairs and which ones are the important ones to hide. Because it's not always obvious to, especially if you're a new user to using SSH and public-private key pairs. Definitely, this is an interesting technique to steal private keys and therefore be able to access other machines via SSH, which basically means you probably have ownership of that machine at that point. Yeah. So uh, I guess the, the best way to detect if somebody else is noticing this is to monitor your logs. Yeah. ID underscore RSA or an ID underscore DSA or an ID underscore ECDSA is not a file that you would normally expect your web server to be serving up. So if you're finding requests for these in your web logs with a 200 success error code, then, you know. If you see evidence of people trying to fetch those, and even worse, if they try to fetch it and they get it, like a 200 OK response comes back, that would be a problem. So then yeah, that might be something you need to go run down really quickly, uh, make sure those keys are changed, and that that, uh, that file directory structure is protected from being able to be accessed just by anybody. I guess the bad guys never cease to impress me with the way they think laterally around how to do uh, malicious things. So this is another good one uh, in terms of creative, out-of-the-box thinking, in my opinion. So Joe, there's a lot of talk about autonomous cars these days, and I understand you had a story related to that you wanted to share. Yeah, so uh, in SC Magazine, uh, Edward Amoroso from Tag Cyber and Sharon Vardy from Pavodi, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but they put out an article basically creating this analogy between autonomous cars and autonomous application security. Basically trying to get you to understand the ramifications of automation with regard to application security the same way you could kind of conceptually understand 
the need for security with a t an autonomous vehicle, a self-driving vehicle. People can think about, okay, if this car is gonna drive itself, it better know how to stop at a stop sign and it better not be able to, you know, get tapped in from the car in the lane next door to tell it to slow down. You know, comparing that with application security. So the idea is for these applications to secure themselves. And I think we all know that there's some trade-offs there and this is just, you know, they've, they've really done some thinking about how, how we should be thinking about what, you know, automatic application security really, really looks like. So I thought it was interesting. I actually think this is a really great idea. The problem I think is going to be that getting the software developers on board. Now, people driving cars, we inherently understand the risks involved there, right? right. If something goes wrong, there's risk to life. You know, someone could die right. um, or you could run into somebody else or cause other property damage, whatever. A lot of bad things could happen if an autonomous car goes off the rails. But to secure code, people who write the code need to feel that there's that same level of risk that if something bad happens here, you know, if something goes astray, right. that it's going to be a catastrophic type of event. And I don't know that most of the software developers I run into, they just want it to do the functions it's supposed to do, not write all this insulating code around it in order to secure it. With application code, it's not quite as obvious that if you don't follow these principles and guidelines of securing your code and protecting it from these various types of outside threats or internal threats that could occur, that you're going to have the same level of risk there. There needs to be a level of ownership and trust within the creator. So with the autonomous car, it's, you know, the person creating the self-driving components and the, the checking of what's doing what, the sensors that are seeing what's around. And with an application, yeah, it's the developer. Um, I, I agree. I mean, I, I work more on the development side, so I, I see that, you know, there is a level of pride and, you know, understanding of what you're creating that needs to be there, and, and security has to always be part of that. So It's not an easy problem, because that's, that's the way developers are always under the gun. You know, they've got a deadline, and users want new features or whatever, and so, you know, taking that step back and thinking about the system as a whole and how to get it to, to, to protect itself is going to take uh, some effort in changing the mindset of the developers and the, and the folks who are asking the developers for all these features. You know, it's a mindset change that needs to take place pretty much all the way down the line. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of what the writers of this story were saying is that this is a topic that needs to be discussed and it people need to be able to conceptualize what automation really means. So you know, that's why I thought it was a useful story and you know, it gets us talking about autonomous application security, Not maybe not the top of our list. Maybe it's more three, five years down the road, but it's something I think to at least start a conversation about. It's a lot different than driving a car. However, we have seen lots of you know, high profile data breaches um, yep, you know, some significant things happening over the past couple of years here that have cost companies to either dissolve in some cases or have um, serious setbacks in their stock prices. So, you know, there's definitely some uh, equitable uh, correlation there in terms of 
the damage that can occur, especially, but you gotta, you gotta get that pushed down and translated to the people, the ground troops who are actually writing this code. Because typically what happens is the CSOs or CEOs are the ones who take it on the chin, not necessarily the person who introduced that vulnerability or bug in the code initially. So I totally agree that this is definitely something that's a good discussion to get started because I think it's something that really needs to become part of just the day-to-day -day livelihood of software development in general. All right, so Joe, let's take a look at the internet weather for this week. Um, there's not a lot of change from last week, and I'm gonna focus on some more of the oddity ones in the top 10 than some of the ones we see all the time. So like the Telnet and SSH, we don't have charts on those this week because we know that there's lots of IoT-based scanning going on for that from the IoT-based botnets that are out there. 445 TCP is mostly WannaCry and some of these other families of malware. The two I was going to focus in on here is 53413 UDP and 8545 TCP, which are kind of oddball ones we don't see all the time. Web is one that's been scanned a lot lately, uh, as well as Remote Desktop Protocol and 443 TCP is HTTPS, which kind of crept up from the top 20 into the top 10 this week. In terms of the most sources probing, which usually indicates botnets uh, right. type activity, because you get a whole bunch of sources at once probing for a specific port and protocol. Uh, we know we've talked about 23 and 22, were probably a lot of these IoT-based uh, families of malware. 445 TCP is most likely WannaCry. The FTP one, you know, we've talked about this a little bit. I didn't pull up a chart this week on it, but we know that there's a lot of actors out there looking for FTP servers to use for various purposes. But the one I thought was interesting that kind of crept up into the top 10 here is 81 TCP. And we're going to take a closer look at that one um, and why that one is uh, in the top 10 this week uh, when it hasn't been previously. So first of all, let's take a look at 8545 TCP. This is most likely related to the Ethereum wallet bug. Okay. And we talked about this last week. I think Matt as well, when he did the internet weather, talked about this. Back on July 20th of this year, there was this vulnerability announced about the Ethereum uh, wallet, which is a piece of software that runs on your machine, and it's for holding your Ethereum cryptocurrency, which right. is a lot like Bitcoin. Right. Uh, somebody found a bug, and they were able to steal $30 million of <laughs> Ethereum, which is... I mean, I guess we kind of laugh. I don't have any Ethereum. Once that happens, so if you look here, this is uh, July 31st, is right around here. So somewhere around here, around this July 20th timeframe is when we first started to see lots of scanning. Prior to this, we don't really see any scanning on this port. Um, and then there's been kind of a steady state amount of scanning going on. Not necessarily a lot of sources doing this, but they're doing a lot of scanning, just a few hosts are involved here. In a previous show, I pulled um, a couple of samples from our honeypots, and there were actually requests from some of these scan sources that I was able to collect that show packet captures that look like they're actually looking for Ethereum wallets mm -hmm. uh, based on what they're querying for. So we're pretty sure that that's what's going on here is more actors looking to see if they can find anybody who hasn't heard about this bug and is still using the Ethereum wallet as part of their software for maintaining that. Has this been patched or is it? It has been patched. Okay. It was patched somewhere probably very close to around this time frame. But you know how that is, right? Yeah. Not everybody gets the message and they don't know to, uh, to update well, their software. Well, it looks like it's just getting worse, huh? In terms of more, uh, more probes, yes. I don't know that that equates to more sources involved oh, in that scanning, yeah. but there's definitely um, an uptick in the aggressiveness and how much scanning has been going on lately looking for it, so. 
So let's take a look at the next one, which is 53413 UDP, which is a well-known bug from a long time ago. And I actually pulled this up as well last week. So from August 25th, 2014, this vulnerability was announced. Trend Micro actually put a story out about it, that the Netis router has a uh, wide open backdoor. It's actually, we've done, talked about this on the show over the past so couple of years. Oldie but goodie. You know, here it is again. We're still seeing the Netis router. You know, we see ramp ups, botnet recruitment. It's been around for over three years now, but we've seen another resurgence in scanning activity trying to uh, recruit new devices into that bot using that vulnerability. And you actually look here, this is August 31st, 2014, and probably a few ticks before that is where August 25th happened. And it was only when this story came out that everybody got on, well, not to everybody. So all the bad guys are... got on the bandwagon, started scanning for this stuff. Um, we saw, you know, we've seen kind of ups and downs. This was a really big period back here yeah. last year around the uh, July timeframe, uh, maybe early August. I think the Netis router has become, you know, like a standing story for us. It's, it's something that we use as an example of IoT devices that are known to be bad for lack of a better term. It comes and goes. It's an interesting vulnerability because it's UDP and you only need to send one packet to actually compromise the machine. So you could spoof your source IP and as long as you have uh, address space that you can spoof from and it wouldn't even be attributable to you. You could compromise devices and the source IP isn't even yours. So there's a lot of interesting so, so do you think the, things about that. The peaks in scanning could align with recruitment or it could be, because I don't know what they're putting on when they, and we actually have captured some of these as well and showed them on the show, right. what they're trying to do. But usually they, they send kind of a bash script command that says either like wget some file and then run it, or a tftp a file and run it. But you'd have to look at what the malware is that they're implanting on there to Would see if it tries to also scan. Well, hopefully most people have either addressed this or retired that piece of hardware for something new. Yeah. But like we said, we know a lot of these types of devices, people just drop them on the network and they let them run. As long as they keep running, they don't really you know, take any action to patch them or upgrade the firmware and whatnot on them. So they might be left vulnerable. But patches are available for this and have been for a very long time. Then the next one we have was on the, the top sources, scan sources in this port 81 TCP had kind of crawled up into the top 10. And we talked about this before, right. a while back, back on April 24th, that there was a new IoT botnet spreading over port 81 on a large scale. A family of like a security camera yeah, that used the go-ahead web server yeah. uh, software. And there was a vulnerability in there that you could pretty easily exploit. And this aligns very well here. So if you look again, this is about May 7th here is where this one word is here go back a little bit, that's right around the April 24th timeframe, we started to see lots of scanning. It kind of went down a little bit. I mean, it kind of, it stayed up around, was it about 2,500 scan sources per hour, but it's jumped back up recently to about 5,000 scan sources per hour. We had seen scanning on port 81 a while back, and you know we didn't really know exactly what it was. It turned out to be part of some botnet activity. Notably in port 81 TCP, that one kind of, jumped up into the top 10, and we looked in our honeypots, we could actually see some evidence of that. We have some insights into what that might be. Um, there was a story that broke this week about another botnet called IoT Reaper, and we talked about it earlier on the, on the program. 
This is a new family of malware that is scanning for nine different vulnerabilities in various types of hardware here. So D-Link, go ahead. So that same go ahead vulnerability is in here, right? JAWS, Netgear, yeah. Vacron. These all listen on various ports, but I kind of consolidated them all to, to this list here. So it's yeah. either 80, 81, 82, 88, um, all these various ports here. So do you think that the scanning we saw in April was an early indicator of the Reaper? No. No. I think that the Reaper is somebody who said, hey, we know about a couple of different ones. Let me get all these different vulnerabilities together. I'm going to make a new family of malware that's going to go look for all these different vulnerabilities instead of just one okay. that, that we know about. And uh, I feel, I don't have a strong analysis opinion, but I feel like this is a different actor set than the one from back in April. Okay. But, uh, but maybe the same, using the same vulnerability. Using the same vulnerability as well as about eight other additional ones against different types of devices to implant their malware on the device. So I thought it would be interesting. I said, well, let's go look in our honeypot and see what we have in here. And I could see uh, these various things that I have highlighted in yellow, which is kind of the leading indicator, all coming in on port 81. And they are all for these exact same ones that were on the list here. So you have D-Link, you have the go-ahead web server vulnerability, uh, Netgear, ReadyNAS, Vacron, NVR is this one, D-Link. And these are all different little tricks that they're doing to either get a config file yeah. or run a command. But now with the IoT Reaper botnet becoming, you know, a primary news item, you know, interesting tie back to some of our previous work with Internet Weather. This one's trying to run a shell command that's in the thing uh, as well. So there's all these various vulnerabilities, but it's one, two, three, four, five. So I got nine of them here. Two of them are for one type of device. I think D-Link or something like that. So they're all really represented in our scanning activity. Yeah. And this is kind of, this is, um, we started to see a, an uptick in this over the past week or so in our honeypots. So uh, if you have these types of devices, these are a lot of consumer Right. type of hardware, either D, you know, D-Link for sure, Netgear, Linksys, AV Tech is a security camera, Go Ahead Web Server is one that's used on those security cameras as well, Vacron is another network video recorder. So if you have those types of devices, you definitely want to pay attention, uh, make sure you get those patched. I I'm not positive, but I believe all of these are patchable at this point. Yeah. Um, it's just a matter of people taking note and making sure that they patch these, uh, their hardware so that they're not vulnerable to this anymore. But I thought it was an interesting kind of corollary that, that we actually have some evidence of an uptick in activity specifically targeting these various vulnerabilities. And while I show them here, I'm not really revealing any secrets. If you go to these pages yeah. on this website for this article, you'll be able to read about all these vulnerabilities in depth, in much more depth, yeah. uh, about how they actually function and for exploit purposes. So that's about it. Cool, very cool. This week, we really looked at the future. Are we gonna be thinking about the IoT Reaper the same way we think about the Mirai botnet? We're still gonna be looking for vulnerabilities, everything from something small, like, like exposing your SSH keys, to something you know, really conceptual, like you know, automation and machine learning and, and securing your application. So, you know, the show today kind of made me think about, you know, what are we going to be talking about, you know, six months, a year, three years down the road. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.